welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I am Danielle Dory, and my guest today is Louis Glinert, Professor of Hebrew Studies at Dartmouth College, where, uh, Professor Glinert, you are also affiliated with the program in linguistics. Um, so thank you for joining us today. It's my pleasure. And we will be talking about your new book, The Story of Hebrew, which uh, was recently published by Princeton University Press. Um, and I would like to start by describing your book as a biography of Hebrew, in which, a book in which a, a specific language, regardless of its uh, many faces and uh, phases, um, the phases it has gone through over the, cor- the course of, of centuries, of millennia, um, but, but Hebrew really features as a character, as an entity in and of itself in, in, in your book. So, first of all, I would like to hear whether you agree with this description of uh, your book as a biography of Hebrew, and what prompted you to write a biography of a language. Well, it's um, in a way a, a, um, a challenge for uh, anyone who works in sociolinguistics, which is the, the study of language and society, and anyone who works in ethnolinguistics, which is the study of the way people use language as an everyday tool for whatever they want to do. Uh, it was a challenge because um, it's very tempting to see Hebrew, like so many languages, as purely a commodity that people take up and put down and don't have very strong feelings about it. And certainly might not want to risk their lives, their careers, their everything for the language. Um, so when you see Hebrew going through so many metamorphoses and coming out different but still alive and called, well, either Ivrit or Lashon Kodesh or something about called something consistently and then find that it's actually at the heart of the remaking of Jewish life and identity in the 20th century. You've got to stop and ask, what's going on? Is this almost like a person? Mm -hmm. And may I ask you a personal question? When were you first introduced to this person? Um, I remember the uh, I remember the place, I remember the time, I can't give you the exact date, when the teacher in uh, school, I was a, uh, a five-year-old, handed out huge cardboard letters with Aleph, Beis, Gimel, and we had to chant them. And this was in, in a small Jewish school in post-war London. So how did it become your subject of academic study? Well, um, I want to say thank you to my sister, Carmela, because when she came back from her first visit to Israel, she brought me back a little book called Chamishim Ot Milim. I was an 11-year-old, and the only Hebrew I'd ever studied was the Hebrew of Torah and Mishnah and Gomorrah and, of course, the prayers and my mother would sit with me on the Shabbat morning and go through the prayers. And then all of a sudden, my sister brings back a little book and it's got pictures of life in Israel. Uh, and then shortly after that, my parents took me for my first visit. I was 11 
And I just couldn't get over the fact that you could ask for a bus ticket and that you could stand up in a bus and say to the driver, Rega, Rega, that's the first word I remember in Israel. Stop, stop. Well, hang on. Someone's still trying to get off. <laughs> and, you know, this actually, um, it caused wonderment for me. And, you know, you never know what kind of things really suddenly hit you when you're an impressionable child. But from that moment, I knew that I wanted to explore that language and make it mine. And I still remember getting so excited when I found in a, a Hebrew newspaper a word for but. And it wasn't the word that I'd ever seen in the Tanakh or in the Tefilot. It was aval. And, you know, people get excited about a lot of things. Probably not too many people get excited about the word but. But there you have it. That was the beginning. That is very, very interesting. And you did write your one of your previous book is a sort of a dictionary, right? Some sort of a, of, of, of a dictionary that includes words that... Um, whose audience is is obviously not an audience of uh, Hebrew speakers, uh, but rather, how would you define it? Diaspora Jews? I mean, I feel like the terms can be so delicate. And this brings me to a question about the audience of this book and how do you see it and, and, and who... who what kind of people do you think it, it consists of? Well, um, I've had to change my um, expectations about who the audience is going to be because I really didn't think that it was going to um, hit the headlines at all. And um, I imagined it was going to be a book for my students who get sick and tired of me just talking and saying, well, these are the ideas, try and write them down as quickly as you can, because no one's really attempted to put together the, as it were, the picture, the organic picture of the language, as I've been doing over the years in my teaching at Dartmouth, and before that at uh, London University. But I realize that there is a whole world of people who are either fascinated with Hebrew because it means something to them as Jews or Christians. Uh, it may be something very subconscious. And there's a whole world of people who are just fascinated by language per se. And to this day, there is no um, documented case of a language being successfully rescued from, let's call it a 2,000-year sleep. And uh, this must be of interest to anyone who wants to understand the workings of human language and what we are, what is cap we are capable of in our modern world. But one of the arguments that you make in your book is that, of course, the the mod the modernization or the modern reinvention of Hebrew as a vernacular had parallels and and in fact um, took inspiration from the modernization of other languages. Um, how, how do you see that uh, now that you've written this biography of Hebrew? Um, languages all around us are constantly having to adjust to the, the changes that are taking place at uh, what they call breathtaking pace. Every language is having to deal with 
new technology, the digital age and so on. English isn't an exception. So at that basic level, I'd say that Hebrew is part of a broad um, um, a broad phenomenon of language adjustment. In the case that you mentioned, there was something else which was highly political, um, highly um, um, nationalistic. All around them, the Jews saw the, the peoples of Central and Eastern Europe bidding to reinvent themselves because the old empires, the Austrian Empire, the Tsarist Empire, the Ottoman Empire were falling apart in the late 19th century. And those empires had imposed a kind of standard language, be it German or, or Turkish or Russian, whatever. And all the little languages um, had for so long not been um, a school subject, not been the... the um, the, the the material for um, newspapers, um, high prose and so on, they were all scrambling to find their own place. And one of the most uh, remarkable um, ways this happened was in the creation of dictionaries. Um, some people uh, may look occasionally into the Oxford English Dictionary. Gilbert Murray in Oxford did a phenomenal job in... Um, I call it rescuing the heritage of English and putting it there in that dictionary. It wasn't just a, something you open to play Scrabble. It was the history of their language. And in France, you had Littré doing the same thing. And in Germany, you had the, the, the Brothers Grimm. All over Eastern Europe, people started saying, we need a dictionary of our past, our heritage. And lo and behold, Ben Yehuda, often portrayed as the father of modern Hebrew, his big goal in life was to write the dictionary of Hebrew, meaning the whole of the Hebrew past and what he hoped to turn into the Hebrew future. So where did he start and how did you decide to start your own book with the Hebrew Bible itself? Um effectively showing to your readers that the Bible, the Bible doesn't tell us that much about Hebrew. So do you want to talk a little bit about where you start the book and, and, and where would a good dictionary as Ben Yehuda's should start insofar as Hebrew is, is concerned? Well, let my, let me immediately offer my deepest apologies to Mr. Elizabeth Ben Yehuda because he would have been thoroughly shocked at what I said in the book. In his dictionary, there wasn't a single word from any foreign source. Uh, words like Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court in ancient times, would not have appeared there because they were Greek words. He was a um, an extreme purist. I don't have that kind of issue. Um, Hebrew has always taken from right, left and center. The story of the Jews in Egypt um, is full of Egyptian words, although most people don't recognize them. Words like Ahu and um, Avrech. And the rabbis even suggested that the word Anochi, 
I in um, more um, traditional Hebrew, the first word of the Ten Commandments, they suggested that might be an Egyptian word, maybe there to make the Israelites feel, as it were, more at home. Um, so Ben Yehuda and I, starting from very different places, I start from the Bible. Again, many um, people who deal with language purely as a language would say, uh-uh, you don't start by looking at a text. You start with the language, the sounds, the verbs, the syntax. Now, first of all, my audience would probably have closed the book immediately. But beyond that, I wasn't there to write a history of the language in uh, isolation. It's the language in the context of Jewish culture, Jewish heritage, Jewish identity. So you have to start with what the Bible seems to say or imply about Hebrew. And this is, to me, so fascinating because the Bible doesn't begin, this is the word of God. And it certainly doesn't begin, we're now using Hebrew. <laughs> it, it, and it begins, in the beginning God created the heavens and earth. And then you say, well, um, how did he do that? And, and God's said let there be light and he said and over and over again it said god said what does that imply um if you are of a philosophical bent you ask yourself questions about what is the relationship between language and life and could it be some kind of transcendental dimension to language that the bible is getting at those are the kind of fundamental questions that i ask and i and although I've, I must have read those first few words of the Torah countless times, I felt myself asking new questions by simply sitting back and saying, what's going on here in terms of Hebrew? And, and the book indi indeed is um, in interdisciplinary. You just pointed out that you would lose readers had you started with the syntax and sounds and and uh, with the with the verbal realm and 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 the way you uh, describe it in in your introduction, you suggest that your book is more than an exercise in historical linguistics, um, and and you pose many questions as as you just pointed out about the cultural representations of of Hebrew, and um, you you use. Um, organic metaphors, or that brings us back in a way to the question of a biography of a language. Hebrew can win or lose and, and emerge victorious and, and, and of course, um, die or continue um, living. I am interested to know, it might be a, a slightly you know, academic uh, question, whether linguists uh, tend to use, uh, I see it a lot in Hebrew literature, um, especially in early 20th century Hebrew literature, these metaphors of uh, death and life. But do linguists use them? Um, they do, and then they promptly apologize. Um, it's very difficult not to use metaphors like that. Um, it's, I think it's better to talk about um, speech communities. Here I'm being on my best behavior as a sociolinguist. We're talking about speech communities, their choice of language, their conceptions of what is one language as against another language. American and English are two languages, one language. Um, and 
it's possible to uh, trace many, many of the structures and the words across 3,000 words, 3,000 years. And you might say they're the same, but in many respects, the pieces are constantly moving around the board, as I say in my book, even though the pieces may be the same. So um, over and over again, we, we find ourselves asking, what is what is the real um, social or cultural meaning of this word, this phrase, um, this choice of a, a stratum of the language to use? Um, really, this it's like a kaleidoscope. I don't think anyone can ever reach the final word on this. It's so many ways of looking at the same thing. And and your book, your book really spans um centuries so so you look at the written language and the oral language um and the language that is strictly read over the course of many 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 years so was that a a, a significant challenge to to write about so many centuries of um hebrew use and and uh, um and about different communities as well in the, in different uh, places. Yeah, I I wrote and rewrote that book many times over. Um, I started off with a lot more book than what it ended up with. Thank uh, thankfully they kept me to two hundred and fifty pages. I um, found myself like a juggler. There is simply, first of all, so much written about Hebrew, so many fine angles, so many curiosities. What do you do with it all? Um, scholars tend to shy away from writing books like this, partly because they tend to get um, a lot more academic points for writing about restricted things. Not many people do a um, an, um, Einstein's theory of relativity. Well, if they do, it will be on the back of an envelope uh, and it'd be a one page publication. But to take so much material and to try and, um, first of all, put it into some kind of cogent shape and then to ask what I felt were the right questions and to leave out so much. Um, this for me was an incredible challenge and I, I can only use the Hebrew expression some kind of higher inspiration otherwise I don't know how I could have done it and of course my wife helped me tremendously by telling me this just doesn't make sense or can't you say that a bit more simply and, and it is a book that um, often um, says very simply um, things that are, are hard to grasp and it's chronological. So, so, um, one does follow the story, uh, relatively easily, but the only deviation from the, the, the chronology is in the two chapters that you dedicate to, um, Hebrew and the Christian imagination. And, um, I think, and, and and correct me if I'm wrong, that it would be fair to say that your your book is written from a Jewish perspective, and um, it examines Christian Hebraism and, and Christianity 
from from a Jewish uh, perspective. You you even define the emergence of Christianity as an emergence of a Jewish sect, which which I'm, I'm uh, and again I, I know very little about antiquity, and um, I've 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 read it a lot in um, in Hebrew literature as well. There, there is um, you know again if I put it bluntly, Jews uh, often would try to make a point that you know we were there first. Let let's uh, again uh, put it in in simple words. So what kind of challenges that these chapters about um, Hebrew and the Christian imagination pose for you? And how do you think, you know, Christian readers, and of course, to say Christian readers, it's it's so broad, but how would they perceive this book, read this book, etc? Yeah. Um, wow, that's some, a real um, long list of questions there. Um, I, I want to go from the particular to the general you mentioned um, the portrayal of Christianity as emerging as a Jewish sect. Actually, it emerged both as a Jewish and a Gentile sect because there were, uh, at the heart of it, Jewish disciples of Jesus. But then there was a big break when Paul decided that he wasn't going to get a big Jewish following. So off he goes to Cyprus and Asia Minor and preaches to the Greeks. And at that point, Christianity becomes a non-Jewish religion and Greek becomes the defining language of Christian discourse. And not surprisingly, Greek was the language of the Christian Bible. And Hebrew, as it were, at that point, just retreats into the background. There were Jewish Christians for some centuries. Hebrew retreats into the background but then it leaps off the page when uh, a certain Roman um, ascetic called Jerome um, discovers in the middle of the Syrian desert that he's got a neighbour for a, um, an ascetic a, um, a Jew a former Jew who teaches him Hebrew and Jerome has some phenomenal linguistic capability and he sets about to retranslate the whole of the Hebrew Bible from the original into a new Latin translation. There were lots of them. He was fed up with them. They were always all over the place. And that moment in the fifth century is where Hebrew re-enters Christian life. And then again, it goes back into the onto the margins because people are happy reading their Bible and everything else in Latin or in Greek or Coptic or whatever. And then you jump to the 11th century. And then in France, you have a an extraordinary group of uh, Christian clerics, scholars who decide this is the time to go back to the original and they go to the rabbis in France and they learn their Hebrew by various sources, go and constantly bother them. What does this mean? What does that mean? We don't like that because it's against the Christian view of the text and so on. They had a particular um, penchant for going and asking what they called Dr. Salomon, known to Jews as Rashi. And then again, it retreats into the background until the church discovers that this might be a way of converting the Jews, suggesting to them that they don't understand their own scriptures, and we take it from there. What does all this mean? And taking it 
from a Jewish point of view, um, most scholars today would never um, podcast. They are squeaky objective. I'm at a new phrase. People all have their angles. And dare I say it, a bit of an agenda. I try to, to, to sit on mine, but basically I I'm, I'm, cannot but look at Christian interest in Hebrew with a bit of a Jewish perspective, but I'm trying my hardest to look at it through their eyes. And I'd say one thing, which is to, to many Jews, just a fact of life. And to some, it's a state of um, a source of a certain embarrassment. Some of the standard modern Hebrew, uh, modern grammars and dictionaries of biblical Hebrew were written by Christians. German Christians, Gesenius, for example, because at some point they overtook their Jewish, um, let's call it competitors. And today, I mean, when you teach Hebrew in an Israeli university, you are going to be quoting German Hebraists more than you're going to be quoting Jewish Hebraists. So as I said in Hebrew, that's the way it is. I'm not going to get bent out of shape. But I'm glad you you brought up um, Israel and modern Hebrew in um, Israel today because you're, that's where your book ends. So um, after um, a very long and fascinating journey, you take us, the readers, to um, modern Israel, uh, before that to early Zionism um, in Europe and, and um, the, the migration that, that follows. And first of all, one of the striking arguments that I found in the book, again, as an, as an Israeli, um, is um, in the earlier part of it, or um, at, at, in the beginning, where, um, still in antiquity, you suggest that sometimes Jewish exile really strengthened Hebrew rather than uh, weakened or, or um, endangered it, because some sages, rabbis, had um, this commitment to, to the language of, of ancient, um, of, of their texts. I, mean, I shouldn't be using ancient in this context, and, 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 and could see the importance of preserving it. Now I'm going to jump to modern Israel and one of the arguments that you make in the final chapter of, of, uh, your book. And, um, you, um, you, you, you really oscillate, if I may, uh, between, um, uh, pointing out that a young he, uh, Israeli child could pick up the Bible and understand some of it between that position and the position that, in fact, especially in the secular realms of Israel, a lot has been lost or has not been imparted to to young children. And you also point out that as Hebrew um, was gaining power in in this the Jewish state, where it is the official language, um, one of um, uh, a couple of official languages, but of course the language of the place. Um, as this was happening in diaspora communities, um, Hebrew has lost its place as, um, a second language almost. Um, um, so 
what what we what can be you know derived from from this description at the beginning of the book and in the end of the book and i'm sorry that it's taking me a long time to put uh, my thoughts together but um is that israel israel in a way displaced hebrew and um it no longer plays the role that it used to play and its future might be different because of israel rather than you know, its its future is now guaranteed because of Israel, which is an argument that could also be made um, uh, using your book. So I hope it's clear somehow what I'm asking. Yeah, um, um, I'm going to jump in there and um, again start from the particular. Uh, you go on YouTube and listen to um, some of the, um, um, the the latest, greatest artists, someone like... Um, um, Idan Reichel, um, fusion music. Um, I was listening the other day to something which was based in part on um, and Amharic. He worked as among Ethiopians when he was in, in military service and on Hebrew. And there is a kind of a mixture of the old and the new. And then I was listening to um, something else the other day. Um, it was Meir um, Banai, uh, and um, he had a piece in English called Hebrewman. It was the name of the piece is an English word, Hebrewman. It was an incredible fusion again of the of the heritage language and the modern colloquial, and it seems that. Um, um, Israel cannot get its past out of its system. I would never want to predict where that country and that country's culture and identity and educational system and everything are going to be 20 years from now. Uh, we've had, it's been such a roller coaster. Um, uh, the army, once upon a time, the Israeli army was busy um, um, giving its soldiers lessons in Jewish heritage. And then that gone, as it were, out of, I don't want to say fashion, it's off the agenda now. Where will it be in 10, 20 years' time? We don't know. The, at the moment, if we can freeze it, there's like a kind of a flip. On the one hand, you've got in the diaspora, most Jews wouldn't be able to put a Hebrew sentence together. They might learn a few, but they wouldn't be able to put one together. And wouldn't understand much of what they said in their bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah. And yet, in the diaspora, you've got ever more children learning the ancient texts intensively, my grandchildren among them, and pronouncing them in a way that would have been considered impeccably um, Polish. And at the same time, in Israel, we have apparently the opposite. You've got a majority where they barely get a couple of lessons in school per week in Jewish texts. So are they going to be able to, I won't mention Agnon, will they be able to open a, a Lea Goldberg or an Altman poem and, and understand so many of these what we call recherche words or get the, the, the allusions and so on? No. But despite the appearance that everything has flipped, all of these people, in some sense, are living together. 
their neighbors, the those who are in Israel deeply committed to the traditional study on neighbors in the army, in the street, with those who aren't. The majority in Israel probably call themselves Masorti, sort of traditional, somewhere in the middle. So um, I, in a way, stopped my book at a certain point, but it has a kind of Motown quality because it kind of fades out gently. And I want you to feel that the music is going on after the sound's been turned off. That is what Hebrew is. Well, on this note, uh, Professor Glennert, uh, we will uh, finish for today. And um, I want to thank you very much for joining me uh, as, as part of the New Books Network, New Books in Jewish Studies. Um, we uh, spent half an hour talking about your new book, The Story of Hebrew, which uh, came out um, through Princeton University Press recently. Uh, many, many thanks, and maybe uh, in Hebrew as well. Toda. Goodbye.